Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Friday, October the 2nd. Chrissy Teigen has been getting both criticism and support online after posting tragic news of her miscarriage yesterday. If one in four women suffer miscarriages, we have to have a conversation about the lack of conversation surrounding this tragic event. That's coming up. And Nui Blanche is going virtual for 10 days starting Saturday. The specifics sound super exciting. But first, it's the biggest story on the planet today. Uh, President Donald Trump tested positive for COVID-19. The First Lady also has a COVID-19 and they are currently isolating. However, the White House is saying it's business as usual. We're just doing it in isolation. Quite an October surprise it is. Joining us now on the line from Washington is our uh, producer and friend of the show, Reggie Cicchini from Global News. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning. Happy Friday. Okay. I need to know the reaction in Washington was what? Uh, I mean, the reaction has been uh, 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 just a, a round of questions right now as to how long this has been spreading through the White House and what the potential fallout could be from the commander in chief contracting COVID-19, having it spread so that his wife uh, has contracted it as well. Uh, and now the kind of massive effort to contact tracing uh, to to see who may have been in contact with President Trump or that we're also now finding out uh, the head of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel, has also tested tested positive. So there is there is a massive effort underway right now, a coordinated effort to ensure uh, that they can figure out just how far and why this has spread. I don't you know, you don't want to name and blame because you can't really with this virus. But his senior aide, Hope Hicks, tested positive and she wasn't feeling well. She was with him the other day on Air Force One and then the chopper and very few of his administration that are that close to a mask up. I know she was also with Jared Kushner. What's going on with the rest of the family? Have you heard anything about their uh, tests and how worried they are. Yeah, from the White House, we know that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have tested uh, uh, negative for the virus. We know Barron Trump has also tested negative. Uh, but, you know, given that the fact that the president is now going to be in isolation uh, on the upper levels of the residents at the White House, along with Melania Trump, uh, there are questions now as to the staff that deal with the, uh, the personal side uh, of things inside the White House, but also the staff on the first level uh, that, that extend far and wide to the east and west wings. Uh, there, there are are serious questions here, especially when you look at Hope Hicks, her contact tracing chart. There are at least 21 senior members of the Trump family and the administration, uh, including the press secretary and the chief of staff that were in contact with Hope Hicks that have then gone uh, and carried out further activities, including a full press briefing by the press secretary yesterday when they knew that Hope Hicks had tested positive. What do we know about uh, Pence? I'm hearing that he has tested negative. Pence has tested negative, according to his office, along with the second lady. We know uh, that Joe Biden is also going to be uh, tested later today. We've heard from the Biden campaign that there's been no contact from the Trump campaign or the administration to let them know that this outbreak uh, has begun, considering the two of them what? were on stage with each other. Uh, we also know that uh, that uh, that uh, there are conversations now uh, as to, you know, what would happen with the 25th Amendment here? Was Mike Pence going to be OK if Donald Trump became inca uh, incapacitated? If Pence had come down with this as well, would Nancy Pelosi have been contacted uh, to ensure that government is running? There are just a lot of questions and circles that are being run right now in D.C., yeah. OK, so let's let's go through those those questions. So what would happen? So if Trump uh, was unable to discharge, you know, his he, he was unable to perform his duties, he um, he would have to write a note to the Senate president. 
Is that right? And then and then that would go to Speaker Nancy Pelosi and then Pelosi would then pass on the message that Pence would serve. And if Pence couldn't serve for some reason, would Pelosi become possibly the president of the United States in the meantime? Yeah, that there's a the 25th Amendment lays out the line of succession that goes behind the president. And there are some clerical things that need to be undertaken in order to be able to kind of pass that baton along. If the president does find himself unable to carry out his duties, even if it's just for a short period of time, which we've seen with presidents in the past when they go for routine operations, uh, Mike Pence would then step in. If Mike Pence was not able to step in because he was also incapacitated, it automatically would go to the third person in line and then Nancy Pelosi would assume an acting role in the government. We know from White House uh, uh, members and from Speaker Pelosi herself that they have not contacted her about carrying on the continuity of government right now. And that's simply because Donald Trump, uh, as he has said, he's in isolation, but it's quote unquote business as usual as he works from the executive residence. Okay, some people are going to assume that this uh, next question is in poor taste. I get that, but I think it's an important question to ask. So uh, this is a hypothetical because we know this is this can be fatal, especially for people that are in high risk groups. Donald Trump is 74. He's obese, five times more likely to find himself uh, hospitalized due to COVID-19. Let's just say worst case scenario, Trump doesn't make it like things go south for Trump and he passes away due to complications from COVID. What would happen if this occurs in the next month? Would Pence then be running for president of the United States? How does that work? Has anybody discussed that in the White House and what would happen? I mean, that's it's it's not something that's been discussed publicly. I'm sure uh, that, you know, each administration has private conversations on what happens uh, in 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 the, you know, often very unlikely event that the president uh, is no longer able to carry out their duties because they're no longer alive. Uh, Mike Pence would automatically become the president. Uh, the election is underway. Only Congress is vested with the power of changing the election date. So this election would likely have to go forward simply with Mike Pence on the ticket, with the appointment of a secondary vice president to be on that ticket as well. Well, uh, I'm I'm going to just make an assumption here that it's a conversation that's not really taking place uh, in either campaign right now. Uh, President Trump says he is experiencing mild symptoms. We know that his age, we know that his weight, we know that his health uh, past does present a challenge for uh, COVID-19. But right now, I think the most focus is simply on allowing uh, government right now to continue as is to ensure not only that the U.S. is safeguarded uh, nationally, but also to ensure that foreign adversaries and, and hostile nations don't try to take advantage uh, of, of the president's condition right now and exploit it for their own good. I can't believe they're not having that conversation. I mean, yeah, maybe they're not making it public, but you'd have to. I mean, this is the one of the most important positions on the globe. Do we know if there are medical staff in the White House monitoring Trump right now? What is he taking this extremely seriously? Look, there are medical staff in the White House at all times. The White House uh, uh, physician is the one who put out the note today to say uh, that the president uh, is doing okay, uh, that he would be in isolation uh, per CDC guidelines. Uh, it, it's unclear. I mean, look, we haven't heard from the president outside of a tweet. We don't know anything uh, that he's feeling right now. We don't know uh, how, how, he, how he's acting right now. All we can go are based on uh, the video and, and the, the kind of persona that we saw during the debate. He was a little off his game. He was a little fired up, but he was a little... Uh, off his game over the days before that and the day after. Uh, now we know that he was experiencing some symptoms of COVID-19. So this is an opportunity for him to simply just at least try to sit back and, and, and recover. Uh, but 
until we see what's going on, uh, it's, it's basically left up to educated guesses and what we can get from White House aides. We do know that there's a concerted effort for the White House to show the president at some point today to show that he's still uh, able to carry out the duties of the Oval Office, uh, whether it's a photo, whether it's, a, it's an address to the nation. That's something that's still to be seen. I mean, these are th- this COVID positive diagnosis for Trump is really his worst nightmare, not only because it's COVID, but, it, you know, he he doesn't like looking weak. And one thing he doesn't want to be is a loser. And I mean, he has th- this. Both of these things are must be weighing heavily on his shoulders because these are things that he really uh, actively calls other people out for being. Well, look, even outside of, of his uh, his use of the word weak, his use of the word losers, he's now actively been diagnosed with a uh, with a virus that he has downplayed for months, saying that it's not a big deal, saying that the U.S. is set to round its curve and has said this to the point of where his own believers, uh, his own followers, rather, believe that coronavirus is not a real thing, that it's something that was made up by uh, the Democrats to try and go after President Donald Trump. He now has to find out a way to change his tune and, and make his belief make his followers uh, see that this is a real threat, not only to, you know, Joe and Jane Doe on the street in middle America, but it can also affect uh, the highest office uh, in the land. Uh, and, you know, he may be able to use the fact that he's getting kudos and, and well wishes from uh, from foreign leaders, including the leader of Turkey, including the leader of Russia, uh, to wish him well. But this is going to have to spark a change in the conversation and the tone uh, of President Trump, since he's likely not going to be able to get back out on the campaign trail, especially in those states where he needs support. Reggie, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon on this. Thank you. I don't know how people live their lives on social media. I know I probably should be living more of my life on social media based on what I do. I, 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 although you would know it, am relatively private. I mean, I'm very honest on the air about how I feel about things and, you know, my life. But I don't take a lot of pictures of it. I don't I don't feel the need to scrapbook my life through pictures and share them with the world most of the time because I think let's be honest here, who cares? Right? Um but there are celebrities that are celebrities mainly because they keep everybody up to date on what's going on from minute to minute in their lives. Uh Chrissy Teigen is a model. She's also um the wife of John Legend. And she's very active. She has 32.3 million followers on Instagram. And she's being criticized for a post that she put up on Thursday. This post is heartbreaking, quite frankly. It's a black and white picture of her. She's in a hospital bed. Uh, she is has um, a towel wrapped around her. Uh, she, her shoulders are bare. It's black and white. Her face is full of grief and she is basically crying into her hands. Uh, you know, the tears are really obvious. She's just completely breaking down. It's, it's a moment of collapse. There's a nurse behind her looking at some computer screen with a mask on and accompanying this really, uh, emotive picture is a message that says we're shocked and in the kind of deep pain that you only hear about, the kind of pain that we never felt before. We're never able, we were never able to stop the bleeding and give our baby the fluids he needed despite bags and bags of blood transfusion. It just wasn't enough. We've never decided on our baby's names until the last possible moment they're born, just before we leave the hospital. But we, for some reason, had started calling this little guy in my belly Jack. So we'll, 
So he will always be Jack to us. Jack worked so hard to be part of our little family. He will be forever. To our Jack, I'm sorry that the last few moments of your life were met with so many complications that we just couldn't give you the home you needed to survive. We will always love you. She had a miscarriage. And most of the time, we don't talk about these things because we're concerned about upsetting the person who has suffered such a deep loss. Is that the right strategy? And I find it completely appalling that people are calling this woman out on social media for posting a picture like this because I might criticize her for posting what she ate for dinner last week or what she's wearing. But at the end of the day, that's because it means nothing to the grand scheme of things. It, it might give people a false sense of what they could uh, aspire to have. And I don't think, especially now in, in these times of COVID, that these are important things. But this is probably one of her most important posts. Because what it does is it shows grief, it shows loss, and it exposes that this is not just something that she's going through. It's relatable. A lot of people have been through this. Men and women have lost babies because of, of this. So I want to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Tanya Kotler. She is a, a clinical, uh, a clinical uh, psychologist and a maternal mental health expert. And she wants to talk about um, just how common miscarriages are. Uh, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here, especially on this topic. It's so important. It really is. Uh, I know women that have had miscarriages. Uh, to be honest, we've never spoken about them. And I wonder how many other women I know that have not spoken about them that have had miscarriages because the numbers show that it's quite a common experience. One in four women miscarry. One in four women. So if you know four people who have been pregnant, you can start to picture that statistic. Um, and when we say miscarriage, you know, I always try to elaborate that word a little bit. Uh, there is pregnancy loss and infant loss, and the losses can occur at many stages and they are all very real and valid and can create massive grief, loss reactions, even trauma reactions and responses um, because it is a massive identity change for the woman or for the man, for the mother and the father of this baby. You know, you always see those pregnancy test commercials where, you know, parents are elated when they find out the news that they're going to have a baby and, and that's when the planning starts. I mean, in fact, the planning starts before the pregnancy test, but that's where the hopes and dreams start to really uh, be realized. And they're built on, not to mention the connection begins. I mean, you know, you watch your body change as a, as a woman and you realize that you're not in this alone anymore. You're actually, you know, building another person. Uh, just how uh, detrimental is it to people, both men and women, partners, that lose this baby that we um, don't talk about miscarriages. Uh, we don't seem to um, mark the fact that this grief that they're feeling is real. Uh, it's vastly detrimental. I mean, you said something very, very important when that people are getting upset or having reactions whatsoever to Chrissy and John sharing that beautifully amazing, brave photo and their truth. 
And what we're doing when we say they can't share that is we're saying you can't share your real, you can't share your story, you can't share what's happened to you. And when someone goes through anything painful, particularly something of this magnitude, one of the most important aspects of healing is actually sharing your story and having others bear witness to that story and hold the space for what's happened to you. They don't need to fix it. They don't need to problem solve for it. And I think that's often where it comes from. The fear of sharing um, comes from the need to almost protect the listener, except the person sharing needs to organize and process what's occurred to them, occurred and happened to them, sorry. And they need to do that through the sharing and having someone bear witness to it. It's one of the most important parts. Yeah, people have problems, you know, discussing death and loss because especially if it's not your loss, because it, it almost feels like you, you don't want to remind somebody of the pain that they've been going through. For the, but the, the reality is, is when someone passes that you love, uh, you know, whether it's your unborn baby or somebody that you've spent your life, you know, knowing uh, your loss is real. It's always there. It doesn't go away. It's not like it's going to you know, this person's going to, oh, oh, right, uh, all of a sudden snap you back into the reality of coping with this loss. So how do you recommend we go about talking about miscarriages? Because if this is something that we have swept under the rug for the sake of other people, and that's not actually helping them, how do you navigate that? What do you recommend? Well, part of what I recommend is exactly what we're saying or some people are saying shouldn't have just happened. Part of what I recommend is changing the conversation. And I think there's a lot of movement and momentum, at least among those who are advocates in this area, to change the conversation, opening up the the space for these stories to be shared, for these images to be shared, and to understand the importance of that. I think that's part of it. The only way that we'll move it from the shadows is by doing that. And one of the things that happens when we kind of isolate or leave people alone in their grief or in their bereavement is that it almost turns inward. Then feelings of guilt or shame, I've done something wrong, um, not seeing it as normal, feeling more alone in it, right? It can perpetuate all those feelings. And so the more we talk about this, which is why I'm so honored to be having this conversation with you, why I really referred to Chrissy yesterday um, as really a pillar, a tour de force, because she is making a point to say this happened and I am not shielding it from the world. I am, I am sharing my grief and I'm allowing you, the world, to hold me. And she's really asking a question, you know, will you? And I really wish people said yes. Does this secrecy around all of this stem from the idea that you don't talk about your pregnancy until after three months? I think that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, just as you said that in culture, many cultures and traditions around the world, that is a part of it. Um, and what that says is we don't want to talk about your loss. So don't share it. Many of the miscarriages that do occur, occur in that time period. And so that's already saying indirectly, we don't want to talk about it. Is this story bringing up the, uh, things with your clients? Are they contacting you, reaching out? Is this triggering? You know, it's a very good question. I think there's often a misconception in some ways that what is triggering is a bad thing necessarily. Um, hmm. It definitely is validating 
for many people and maybe bringing up their pain, those I've worked with in this context, their pain, their losses. Um, it's creating space, though, for them to talk about it, too. Uh, what Chris, the picture is doing is it's memorializing for her. She's named son. She's named him Jack. Um, they are sharing with the world his name so his name can be said. And for many people, this is bringing up that importance of ritualizing in a way that feels important to you, whatever that might be, naming a balloon into the sky. And I, I have had patients and clients bring up again their ritual, remembering their ritual, reconnecting with their ritual, and reconnecting with the lost loved one. John Legend, you brought up they. He, he's the father. He's also dealing with this incredibly painful loss. Uh, how do you um, recommend men deal with the loss of a, a miscarriage? I mean, they clearly have to be a support for uh, their partners, but they're also dealing with loss. So are they, you know, part of the puzzle of, of healing? And how important is it that we don't neglect that a man has gone through loss here too? Oh, such a crucial question. Um, it is so important that we do not neglect that both parents um, and whatever, whoever the two parents are, um, whether parents have adopted, whether this is through surrogacy, whether it is a mother and a father, uh, whether it is a same-sex couple, the two parents expecting this child, if there were two parents, are both grieving. And their grief, there's no expectation of how their grief should look or should manifest. It can manifest in physical ways, from heart palpitations to tightness in the chest, uh, emotional ways, anxiety, fear, anger, deep sorrow, loneliness, cognitive ways, you know, disbelief or confusion or even preoccupation with it. Um, behavioral ways, uh, withdrawal from work or difficulty connecting, um, avoidance. So it's really this sense of saying grief is so multifaceted, it's not linear, and giving the space for the person to grieve and to feel and to have permission to feel whatever they feel. And that's true for both mother and father, both for the one who carried baby and the one that did not. Okay, so what do we do as people, uh, you know, that have loved ones that might have suffered a, a miscarriage? Do we reach out and say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? Is the most important thing just being there for them in any capacity they, they need you? Yes. So um, my sentence I really like to go with is ask, and then when they answer, ask again. Um, mm -hmm. Try to ask pointed and very specific ways when you offer help. You know, I'm here like for what? you if you so instead of I'm here for you, if you need, maybe, hi, I'm thinking of you. Can I make dinner for you tomorrow night? Um, ah. So kind of trying to create as a precise way of offering your availability. The person may say not right now or it's not okay. And then ask and ask again, as I said. Um, I like that because it's so it. you're already overwhelmed with the loss, like trying to come up with something somebody could do to help you get through something you have not experienced in your life before would be just an astronomical ask. It's it's adding more, you know, uh, stuff to their plate that they certainly don't need. Totally. They don't need often when you're grieving, you don't know what you need. So right. somebody figuring out for you what you need, um, saying I'm available and showing up in whatever way feels right to that relationship between you and the person 
I think is a very, very important thing. And being there to, like I said, to hear their story, to allow them to tell you their story, to tolerate their pain. One of the things that people need most when in the depths of sorrow and pain and grief in this way is that other people can bear witness and tolerate what they're going through for them, with them, kind of sit in the ditch with them rather than make an effort to pull them out of it. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. You've said a lot of important things, and I think uh, I'm sure there's people listening right now that uh, can relate to this. So I I thank you for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Nuit Blanche Toronto was scheduled for this Saturday, and not unlike most big events in the city, it's going virtual this year. But if you already need a break from screen time that goes well into the night, you're in luck because this all-night affair will continue well into the dawn and beyond. Here to talk about it, Nui Blanche Artistic Director, Dr. Julie Nagam. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about how we're going to change Nui Blanche. I understand it's going to be a little bit longer than uh, Dust Till Dawn this year. Yeah, we're going until October uh, 12th. And partly that reason is to just give people the opportunity to learn a new way of experiencing public art. So Nui in Your Neighborhood is um, over 20 uh, works that are augmented and virtual realities. And so you don't really need anything other than a, a mobile phone or a mobile device and, uh, and some excitement and engagement with the material. And you can place that work anywhere in your home, in your, in your local park, you know, walking down the street, looking at one of the buildings that you want to tag. So it, uh, we hope that people have a lot of fun with it. Okay, I'm slightly confused. So what do you mean by that? I mean, can you give us an example of how that would work? So I've got my mobile phone. Yep. And you go to the uh, city website, the the Nui Blanche website, and you click on an artist. Let's say you you click on Cousine Van Hooven, who's made this incredible work around uh, seals. And so you click on his piece and your mobile device automatically uh, reads the file. And then you have an augmented piece on your phone that you can make bigger, make smaller. You can stick it. My daughter actually has Cousine's work sitting in the palm of her hand and you can take a photo with it. So, uh, yeah, you can you get to determine where the art gets to go. So it's like Pokemon meets Nuit Blanche? Pokemon (laughs) Go? Yeah, except for they're not geo. They're not geocached. So you can That's put amazing. them wherever you want. Yeah, so I wow. think it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got some really great Toronto-based artists, uh, lots of na- Canadian artists, and we've got a really uh, great lineup of international artists. So I think people are going to have a lot of fun. Just And that's only one of the streams. So that's called Nui in Your Neighborhood. And I know at yeah. the beginning you joked about kind of screen exhaustion, and it's true, you know, um, people are feeling the frustration of that. So Nui in Your Neighborhood offers you a little bit of a break from that and, and some playfulness with the, with the AR and VR works. How do the artists feel about the Nui in the, neighbor, in the Neighborhood? Because presumably this is already artwork that they had planned and or had made previously uh, that you've had to kind of use in this interesting way. Uh, were they on board or were some, did some say absolutely not? That's not the way it's to be experienced. No, everybody was super excited to try a new format. And I would say that um, some of the artists that we had leading up to the global pandemic had already proposed uh, AR and VR works. So I'm a digital media artist. My, uh, I'm a Canada Research Chair in Digital Media and Indigenous Arts. And so uh, I we would have had a really strong digital media feel to Nuit Blanche for 2020, uh, regardless of a global pandemic. <laughs> 
Do you think this will help people embrace digital art as as true art? Because you know, there had been this this conversation about the, even the controversy of is photography art for the longest time. Yeah, I, I mean, I really hope that's the case. As we see major galleries and museums and institutions having to shift to a digital platform. And, you know, a lot of those institutions aren't ready or aren't prepared because they didn't put a lot of effort into it. So I think that um, we're going to I think we are going to see a shift. And partly that's because of the fact that we can't gather in public spaces. And Nui Blanche is about public art in public space. You know, we have over a million people come out to come look at the works. We do massive uh, installations within the city spaces that aren't normally uh, used for art. And so what we're trying to do with New In Your Neighborhood is recreate that feeling of fun and excitement of like seeing work in unusual places, except for you get to determine where those places are. So we're hopeful that people enjoy it. The, the program for New Nuit Blanche as well this year, as you said, is going to be spread, spread over 10 days. It will include talks, podcasts, live stream, streams. How important is that for, um, you know, grabbing a new audience, a new uh, group of art lovers and bringing them into the fold? I think we have a real opportunity to have a a broader reach outside of Toronto. And although, um, you know, like I said, we have a huge amount of Torontonians that come out and participate in Nuit Blanche, and it is really for the public, um, and we get that participation. I think with our virtual event and just all the things that you listed off, I think that we're going to have a really strong uptake in in Canada more broadly and then internationally because people are are hungry for um, art and, and hope and excitement. And I think that people will gravitate towards that. And we've got a really great roster of artists. We have a robust programming of five different streams and we're really hopeful that people uh, engage with it. The space between us is a theme this year. Was that conceived before (laughs) COVID because it's so completely appropriate? (laughs) It was actually, it's a two year curatorial theme that we, that we made public last year. So, yes, I, I feel like really uh, fortunate that I, I was thinking through, but it, it was really the concept of thinking about uh, people's stories to place, how we belong, how different people come to different places for different reasons. And then if we think about how we have these shared histories, yet we're kind of distinctively different as as people. And so I think that, you know, I think that the concept of connection is very strong and, and the title and the curatorial theme has even stronger resonance with the global pandemic. In this last minute that I have with you, um, there is a group of people that don't like crowds. I mean, some people don't want to go out in the cold. Some people don't want to be around other people through the night uh, or they just, they just don't, the crowds are not their thing. There's an opportunity for these people now with Nuit Blanche to not only relive uh, past Nuit Blanche experiences, um, but ones that, uh, that you might've missed altogether. Can you talk about that? Sure. The Nui history we'll we'll have up of the 14-year history of what Nui Blanche has prepared and 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 all of the projects. So we're looking at we've featured over 1,600 art installations by approximately 500 or sorry 5,800 artists, and we've generated over 443 million uh, in an economic impact for the city of Toronto. So that's huge. And I think the opportunity for people you'll get two different opportunities to engage with the history. Partly will be in the in the Nui live. So the live stream will feature uh, kind of key works in the kind of archive or uh, that we have putting forward with the addition of 20 commissioned uh, artworks that will be interwoven through that 
with the digital uh, 3D renderings of all of the augmented pieces that we have for New In Your Neighbourhood. We've also got some invited guests, some uh, really fantastic local DJs and uh, one DJ from Vancouver. And so we're hoping that people really engage with that material. You know, I think it's a real opportunity to get that feeling, just what you said. And with the five different streams, we really hope that, you know, introverted, extroverted, uh, you know, whether people like crowds, don't like crowds, you know, there's opportunities to kind of have different uh, introspective relationships with the different streams. I really appreciate your time today. It's fascinating. I know that I'll be visiting the site more than a few times <laughs> during New Blanche and over the 10 days. I, I really hope so. And, uh, you know, it's a gigantic experiment and we don't know if it's going to work. And uh, we're hopeful that it does. And we know that we've got a great program and really exceptional art. And so we're hopeful that that catches on. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Don't forget, we broadcast live daily from 9 till noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Have a great day.